Hey y'all, just wanted to give a quick trigger warning. This episode contains mention of sexual assault and violence. Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast they won't play in your high school health class. Boo! (laughs) Today we have Laura... And today we are joined by one of our longtime friends, Tanya from the Trillbillies. Yes! Hello there, Tanya. Welcome to Season of the Bitch. Yeah, welcome back. Yeah. I'm so excited. I wish we were all together in Chicago again, but yes. for those of you that don't know, we were able to have Tanya with us during our first live show back in October in Chicago, and it was just a blast. She's the best. We're so grateful we get to chat with her again and yes. connect in this way. Yeah, me too. I'm so excited. Yes. Yeah. And uh, just going to drop in a little reminder here. We have another live <laughs> show coming up in New York, August Woo-hoo! 11th. Tickets available yes. at seasonofthebitch.com. So, hell yeah. Yeah, y'all should y'all should check that out. But in the meantime, today, what are we talking about, Laura? Yeah, we're talking about sex and sex ed, and we're super stoked to be jumping in on this topic. But I thought, because we have the pleasure of knowing you, uh, Tanya, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, whatever background you feel comfortable sharing? Sure. I am in Kentucky. I'm from Southeast Kentucky, and yeah, and uh, I work at an art center here called Apple Shop. And I've been a part of a lot of organizing efforts around here, including just like youth organizing around staying in the region and trying to figure out how to thrive um, and be your whole full self uh, in a place where you're really pigeonholed into a real specific narrative. So, um, yeah, and out of that work grew uh, a lot of sex ed work. And so in 2011-12, I started my own sex ed curriculum because there was so much need for it um, and people were asking for it. And we finally, a crew of us, were just like, you know what, we're just going to have to create this for ourselves, which I think a lot of us find, a lot of leftists in particular, find wherever they live, they have to create something out of nothing. That's, yeah. That doesn't exist. So here we are years later, and I've, I've been able to teach hundreds of people, little, like, worked with hundreds of people through these sex ed workshops that I call Sexy Sex Ed, and yes. I've, <laughs> I've done them in Kentucky, Tennessee, West Virginia, North Carolina, Virginia, and I think that's it. So mostly in the, like, four or five uh, Appalachian, Central Appalachian states. Love it. Amazing. And you're also a co-host of the Trillbillies Worker Party podcast as well. So if y'all haven't checked that out, definitely check it out. Doing something wrong. Yeah. I'm also a Trillbilly. I forget. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. 
Sexy sex ed first, trailbilly second. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Amazing. Um, so I know when we were kind of putting together this episode, we had talked about like how so many of us come with these like horror stories of our own sex ed. So we thought we would share our own our own little stories of, of how we were taught sex ed growing up and um, kind of our tra- at least for me it's going to be like a whole trajectory piece from there <laughs> yeah when uh if this group is small enough and we have enough time i'll often start the workshops off like this letting people share any uh, of their own sex ed stories so and they're often either really entertaining or really horrifying yeah 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 probably yeah. gonna get a little bit of both with this group <laughs> Um, so I can start. I would say my first encounters thinking about sex and talking about sex with others was through the Catholic lens, which for the specific awful breed of Catholicism I was raised in meant don't touch yourself, don't touch others. If you do, you'll burn in hell for eternity. And also, don't you dare touch someone of the same sex. (laughs) Um, And I've talked a bit on this show before about how traumatic my Catholic upbringing was for me. But again, can't say it enough. Telling children that they will burn in a fiery place for eternity can really fuck someone up. So (laughs) just remember that. Pro tip. (laughs) Keep it in your heads. Uh, Then in high school, it moved pretty quickly to my mom being like, you should make any boyfriend you have get you a promise ring. And my dad being worried literally every time I would be like, dad, I have to tell you something. He would be like, you're you're pregnant. Don't be pregnant. Oh, my Um, God. And that being really the extent of those conversation with my parents, at least. In terms of my public high school health class, our sex ed consisted of that dumbass sugar water HIV simulation activity. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where like one person would start with sugar in their thing. I mean, it, it it's not dumb. It gets the point across. But that was the extent of our sex ed was like oh, you man. could get HIV and that's the end. Um, so like if you you kind of like share your your water with each other and then at the end you put this uh, some sort of chemical in there that if you have any traces of the sugar Uh, which was supposed to be the HIV positive person, then you were infected with it. And that was literally it. There was nothing outside of that activity in our health class that related to sex at all. So I think that activity isn't necessarily bad if it was like in conjunction with a lot of other educational pieces, but... It also was not like uh, totally stigmatizing and like doesn't address treatment or anything else like that yeah and so there was no talks of content consent no talks of sexuality um so then kind of keep trucking along through my 20s i've talked in the past about my chronic reproductive health issue on this show but i have endometriosis and for me penetrative sex has always been painful like a really tremendous amount of pain often leaving me in tears after sexual encounters um And to add to that, the fact that the dude I lost my virginity to, which, like, that phrase in general just, like, irks me, Mm -hmm. Um, he ended up being an abuser to me. Um, So it's all of the my past plus that um, has really made my sexual awakening a slow one. 
Um, and I know we're going to get into it later, but a big piece of my own sex ed that I've done with myself has been a full understanding of my own sexuality and my sexuality, my endometriosis, my trauma, my recovery from Catholicism and shame revolving around my body has really made my sex ed a tumultuous process to say the least, but I'm really grateful to have at least started to reprogram my brain over the last five years or so into search of new ways of finding pleasure and to have a partner that values finding my pleasure as well. Ooh, thanks for sharing. Laura. Wow. Yeah. I also wanted to make a critique of that sugar water simulation because in that simulation, there's no compelling hormonal, emotional, biological reason to share your sugar water or water with people. And I feel like that misses <laughs> right. a really crucial component. Like you could just keep totally. your water to yourself without any negative effects. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> when you're a teenager, especially, you're just like, I got to give everybody this sugar water. And I feel like that <laughs> <laughs> really misses that part of it. Oh, <laughs> my yeah. God. Um, so to be honest, most of my sex ed was in the form of self-education. I stole my mom's copy of Our Bodies Ourselves and read like the entire thing without her knowing it. How lucky, though, that you had that in your home. Oh, my God. I don't even know if she had actually ever read it, but I feel like just when she grew up, everybody just kind of got a copy for their bookshelf. Um, (laughs) It was hugely helpful. Um, I watched PG-13 movies. I listened to a lot of music that talked about sex, and I kind of started piecing together the emotional relationship parts of it. All my more formal sex ed came from pretty much one awkward conversation with my mom and then like a sex ed class I took in public school. My mom didn't talk to me much about sex, but she talked a lot about how I would become a woman soon in like metaphors and vague terms and that I would start (laughs) bleeding. (laughs) And I wanted to be like, mom, I already read your book and I could probably have told her like how her biology would have worked, but I was just like, okay, fine. And I have this really distinct memory um, at like 10, I got my period super early and I wanted to go to the pool and I was like, oh, I'll just use this tampon. I read the instructions that came with the box, put it in and went to the pool. And my mom was like, how are you swimming? You're on your period. And I told her I used a tampon and I remember like the shame and she was so horrified that I did that and didn't mm. tell her. And that really has like, still feels kind of icky to me now when I think about it. Like I didn't understand why it was a big deal. Right. So looking back, I wish that I had learned more fact-based and less fear-based information. As I've talked about a little bit before, I learned last year that I have PCOS. And um, looking back, what is PCOS? I was polycystic ovarian syndrome. So it's a uh, not terribly well understood, sort of like whole body hormonal, has to do somewhat with your insulin condition. But for me, it meant that I wasn't having regular periods. And so when I was 19, my doctor was like, oh, just take birth control. That'll fix your periods. And it's the only way to prevent pregnancy reliably. And I just really wish that my doctor had explained more what birth control does to your body. How long can you be on it? What does it do to your fertility? Or, you know, given me some more information, I guess. And I've since learned on my own that there's other options for both. And for me personally in the future, I think I'll rely more on natural methods, particularly since I'm in a committed relationship. Things like charting my cycle, knowing my fertile period, using condoms when doing anything risky makes more sense to me personally than hormonal birth control. This is like kind of a small rant here, but 
I feel like so much of the medical community treats women like they can't handle nuance. And so everything is just super broad strokes. Like, you know, you're very unlikely to get pregnant outside of a fertile period during your cycle, but doctors and even some sex educators don't trust women to know when that is. So they say things like only abstinence is a hundred percent or only birth control and condoms when that's not, those aren't really the facts. And then if people try to get pregnant and it takes a while, you find out that timing is actually super important. And I think there's a sense of betrayal that your whole life you've been told you could get pregnant at any time. And that's not really true. And as I've been announcing lately, I'm pregnant, which is exciting. Um, and I've- <laughs> oh, that is so exciting. I yes. don't know. Yay. <laughs> um, but I've definitely found this with being pregnant, too. Like alcohol, for example, extremely little evidence that a half glass or even a glass a day has any bad effects. But again, doctors don't trust women to moderate or make their own opinions. So they just say better to abstain completely. And I just think that treating people with respect includes allowing them to make their own decisions based on evidence. Yeah, I I feel like the only slightly exaggerated like sketch comedy version of this is doctors just speaking really loudly and slowly everything that they say <laughs> yes. and they're saying very little is that they just think that we actually don't speak the language that they're using or something is yeah. quite bizarre. Yep. Yeah. Totally. totally. Yeah. Man, y'all have had some yeah depressing sex ed stories mine is also i think kind of depressing i don't remember it super well have kind of these vague memories of of middle school and elementary school sex ed so like they split us up into boys and girls um in fifth grade and sent us to a local museum called discovery place shout out to my north carolinians who know what i'm talking about and uh what i recall from that iteration of sex ed is that the the person talking to us you know the lady talking to the ladies uh told us that when we start shaving our legs it grows back the hair on your legs grows back different um so we should wait and not shave our legs until we really had to um just as a little disclaimer i don't think this is science in <laughs> like seventh <laughs> yeah that was sex ed seventh or eighth grade we were shown a slideshow of genitals with like sti flare-ups which i think was like a scared straight type deal and again in both cases i think there was more to the presentation than than that but that's what i remember like 12 to 15 years after the fact i know my mom who's a doctor was like pretty upset with how my school handled the whole thing and it's i've mentioned again we're going back to some old themes we've talked about on the show before i grew up i went to a pretty very conservative um, private school in uh, North Carolina, like very white and like technically not religious, but also extremely religious. Um, Mm. And so that was kind of what we got. But like, I didn't have a ton of sex ed at home either, you know, like definitely got some of the your growing body books. And uh, there was like, you know, the please talk to me before you start having sex, because I want to make sure first and foremost, that you're safe kind of conversations. Um, But I wish I had had access to more. I think I would have had uh, like much better experiences as a teenager, if I had learned about consent in a meaningful way. And like, most importantly, how to say no. Um, I actually want to do an episode on this show about the idea of consent because I could just mm. go on and on and on and on about how I wish I had been empowered at an early age to really say no and to believe in the fact that I didn't owe anyone anything when it came to affection, mm-hmm. um, physical or otherwise, which I think is something that a lot of women 
don't really understand at a young age. Mm -hmm. And I think that, like, you know, when you're in an abstinence-based system, if you haven't said no from the start to everything, then you failed. And then it's like, well, shit, I have to do what this guy wants now. Or at least some of what he wants. Because I don't know how to have a conversation or really even stand up for myself in this kind of relationship because no one has taught me. Mm. So, yeah, Jesus, I'm really depressing myself thinking about this. But yeah, I think, like Laura was saying, sex ed has to deal with consent. It has to deal with how to say no. It has to deal with sexuality and gender. Normalizing feeling uncomfortable with your body and the gender identity you've been assigned, for example normalizing feeling attracted to people of multiple genders. I really thought as a kid that you were either straight or gay. Though honestly, I don't think I even knew gay was an option for probably like the first 10 years or so of being alive. Mm. Uh, And I thought, you know, if you liked boys, you couldn't also like girls. And I just, I thought a lot of things that ended up being really psychologically damaging when they turned out not to be true. And I, I wish somebody had taught me different and, like, given me space to understand myself better. And I think that's, like, what sex ed should be, you know? Totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I – is it okay if I – Yes. I'm I'm just remembering this, like – I think I – I think I've, like, hidden this in my brain. Uh, in high school, there were these the, – there was this married couple that came and spoke to us. And I went to a public fucking high school. And – they the dude was like I had a bunch of sex and then I met my future wife and was like whoa I feel really bad about the fact that I had sex and now they're like an app they were like preaching abstinence only through this religious lens which like again in a public school pretty fucked but also like dude you already like you can't be talking to us about this like you know (laughs) what I just am like, I feel like there's so many wrong ways to do this and just like being like, it's okay, especially that I feel like amplified a lot of, you know, what Kellen was starting to tap into too of like, there is this gender imbalance where like for men, especially like young boys in high school and stuff, like it's more socially acceptable for them to be promiscuous, but not as acceptable for women and I think even in that abstinence only talk like that was reinforced as well Mm -hmm. (sighs) deep sigh (sighs) Tanya uh what were your experiences with like sex sex ed stuff growing up um well so I feel like I'm similar to hope that I've like blocked out a lot of these memories (laughs) but um but I I do remember watching a video in a science class of a woman giving birth and it being really like intense for me and I'm feeling so uncomfortable with my peers Mm -hmm. and it was like zoomed in on this like really bushy vagina and I just remember feeling strangely like oh my god everyone is gonna know like I just I just felt so like everyone was looking at me and wondering if I had a mm-hmm. bushy vagina <laughs> in the <Aww>. room. <laughs> and I just remember people being so grossed out and me thinking it was like a pretty beautiful like I was uh, I was like traumatized and also like oh my god that was amazing and my peers being like this is the sickest shit I've ever seen. 
Oh, and no. that was probably like my freshman year of high school. Then I also remember someone from the health department coming and talking about abstinence. And I think they split us by gender, but I just don't remember much else of what they talked about or did. And then I, but I was a pretty inquisitive kid as, as in, I just like asked a ton of fucking questions and my family was constantly <laughs> asking me to shut the fuck up about all kinds of things. But I remember asking my mom what a virgin was because I had heard of the Virgin Mary in Bible school. And her being like, you're not old enough to know that. It's like, if we, if we are, at what point are you old enough to know what a virgin is if we're teaching this in church? Like, it's just craziness. Mm. Um, and I don't remember the words my mom said when I asked, when, when she finally had a sex talk with me. But whatever she told me led me, led to the image I had in my head for years, which was that sex happened standing up. And that um, your your pants were just like down at your ankles. <laughs> I remember having that image for years, like the Wait, middle school. Tanya, since we're dredging up memories, I, that brought one up for me too. I remember being, I was like six. Sorry, I'm like yelling into my microphone. I totally no, forgot this that is this amazing. Happened, guys. Go with it. I was, this is the whole episode. It's just, or just like this. <laughs> I was I was like six and I asked my mom where babies came from and she like I said she's a doctor and she like never wanted to like beat around the bush with me even if she wasn't like necessarily super forthcoming with information if I asked I was gonna get an answer so she said it the babies are made and I had had a younger brother so I knew that they like that like women got pregnant and like had babies but I didn't know I was asking basically like how what what makes you get pregnant and she said, it's when a man's penis goes in a woman's vagina. And that was it. And there's no, I didn't have as a six-year-old any conception of like the, you know, that, that there's more to it than that. It's not just poop. There's so much. But so I was much. like really scared as a little kid, like going to a pool or whatever. I didn't want to get too close. Like if I wasn't wearing, you know, like I only had one layer. And if something went terribly wrong, I could get pregnant be, you know, like somebody's penis slips out. I'm in real trouble. <laughs> I anyway. like you could trip and fall and get pregnant. <laughs> oh, that's so cute. For sure, the old tripping for all pregnancy. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I love this. Oh man. Oh my God, it's so much. <laughs> anyway, but- please continue, Tanya. Well, similarly, also to Hope, she talked about music and movies, and I definitely remember listening to lyrics like. Three letters took him to his final resting place and like trying to decode that in the on the TLC's waterfalls, you know, (laughs) Um, and then like listening to Alanis Morissette, there's a lot of like sexual innuendo and I was like pretty young and I remember hearing Wine Dine 69 and being like, what is that? What? (laughs) And I, I definitely remember asking one of my older cousins what 69 was, and they were like, hey, I ain't telling you that. <laughs> <laughs> and then it being like a joke for years Aww. that my cousin would be like, do you ever figure out what 69 and was? <laughs> By the way, until I was like 16, I thought that the three letters were R.I.P. in that TLC song. <laughs> and I was like, oh, <laughs> I was really wrong. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. And just, yeah. So a lot of just piecing together, you know, inaccurate information, lack of information, piecing together things, uh, creating visuals where none were given. It's just like a lot of, mm. you know, like we're like we're expected to be fucking Nancy Drews <laughs> solving the mystery of our own bodies mm. our entire lives. Mm. Basically is how people set us up. 
Um, and I just continue to get more and more evidence for this theory, this Nancy Drew theory. <laughs> and we're expected to just like... Our bodies are supposed to be a mystery our whole lives um, through these sex ed workshops where I continue to hear stories like this. And some of the most innocent questions that I get are the hardest to hear because I'm like, there is no reason we shouldn't have access to this information. Mm-hmm. And double mm-hmm. that, there's no reason this like 17 year old shouldn't be able to ask this question of anyone in their life, any adult mentor. Why are mm-hmm. they having to ask this stranger that just showed up in their drop in center or wherever? You know, mm-hmm. yeah. it's just, yeah. it's pitiful. It's like su- such innocent questions. Like, do I have to shower before sex? Like the mm. most, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. just, so those are the ones that just get me really hard where I'm like, God help us. Why are we our own worst enemies? Why are we doing this to ourselves? Mm-hmm. Um, this is literally the process sure. of repopulating our species and we treat it like, I don't, I, it's bizarre. Yeah, it's so bizarre. Yeah. So we were curious to know a little bit more about how your sex ed programming works. You talked a little bit about some of the problems you see. So like what is different about how you teach? Yeah. Um, so, well, uh, my background is in, like I said, organizing and really like popular education. So thinking that there's a lot of always assuming there's a lot of a lot of answers and information in, in any room of people and just mm-hmm. figuring out how to facilitate everyone to um, rise that information to the surface and then like dig through it together. Mm. Um, And so a lot of it is that. I also um, feel really strongly that we are our best selves are, and we're most likely to learn and grow when we are in a creative space. So we're being like a creative, we're like tapping into our most creative part of our mind. I feel like we learn the best in that space. Um, a lot of people, and I think that's, you know, this is for a whole other episode, but that's why a lot of people, um, don't get what they need in a formal public education environment because there's so little creativity involved in the process, but for sure. Um, so we'll put it in the bank for another episode yeah. to have you back on. <laughs> <Yes>. Okay. <laughs> so, um, most of the activities we do are really interactive and arts driven. So we do skits and role plays and we draw and we do a writing activity in the, the shortest I can do it is an hour and a half, but like two hours is a more comfortable time frame. Um, and so the biggest, uh, I say that the workshop is for all ages and all bodies. The youngest person I've had in the workshop is thir- was 13. And um, I think they had a really good experience. And then I've had folks in their 40s and 50s in the workshop. And they, at the end, said, I learned a lot and I didn't expect to. I was just here to, you know, supervise the teenagers. Thank Aww. you so much for this. So it's like really a mm. nice, um, and I I've almost always will have, you know, adult supervisors or whatever. I'm air quoting here. What, what I don't know what the fucking adult is, but um, <laughs> as a 32 year old, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, of course. But they'll always say, "Hey, if you know, we're we're letting them come to this because this is what they wanted to come to." Because I'll it'll I'll often do the workshop at little uh, youth gatherings or conferences where there's multiple things going on at once. They wanted mm. to do this. Um, so we're going to let, we're letting them come to your workshop, but if things get to whatever, we're going to have to take, make them leave, take them out. I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. You know, anyone can go and leave and come as they please. It's totally fine. But I rarely have people leave or anything. Um, that's awesome. 
Yeah. So, uh, and I say the, the biggest topics that I hit um, in this version are uh, it's anatomy, safety, and consent. And so, of course, like what, you know, if I could teach sex ed full time, I would create a curriculum for you know, eight different age groups, starting with kindergarten, I would have like probably 10 different levels. Like there are just, there. We you could spend hours, I, you could do a whole weekend curriculum on sex ed and you wouldn't even, you would still just probably scratch the surface because like we talked about, this is like something we're all, sex is some, part of our families, our entire society, society, something we're dealing with all the time through media, pop culture, just literally everything going on around us. Um, and mm. so the, the lack of information we do have is uh, <laughs> creates a lot of space for things to fill it with. <laughs> um, so anyway, I f- always feel like at the end of a workshop, the general consensus is we all want more. Yeah. Um, and that'll probably be, be how people feel at the end of this podcast <laughs> they want to hear more <laughs> hell yeah yeah so leave them wanting more maybe that's just a good uh a good tactic for anything but um so when we first start the workshop I started out with a like skit th- um kind of like jingle activity with um some lang with words wording um just to get everyone totally out of their comfort zone because most people aren't like really ready to create a skit with strangers <laughs> <laughs> um so I first just like have everybody brainstorm the five bodily fluids that transfer disease because these are like you know this is five of our own bodily fluids or uh, bodies fluids um we may not have all of them but uh and this is information we should already have right this is really simple info that we should all have access to that we often don't Mm -hmm. and so it usually takes a little bit for us to brainstorm the five but um as a fun activity do you all feel like you know the five bodily fluids? let's hear them what are they blood saliva mucus no, not mucus? saliva. Mm-hmm. Not mucus. Is mucus and saliva the same or no? Uh, I don't know actually. Wait. So what are the, the same, what's the actual? Neither can you of tell, them. It, what's the question? What the are the five? five? <laughs> the five bodily fluids that transfer disease. Disease. Any disease? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Basically. Sex diseases. Yeah, and then some probably. Okay, so uh, semen, blood. We got semen. blood and semen, correct. What about vaginal? Yes, ex- vaginal fluid. Yeah. Amniotic fluid. <laughs> vaginal fluid, yeah. 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 So at my last sex ed, someone said vaginal secretion, and I was like, ooh, don't say that to your partner. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, whatever they're into. Yeah, I guess. Earwax. Um, we did saliva. I think we're missing one. Saliva is not one. No. Oh, we currently have blood, semen, vaginal fluid. We have two more. Why are you ignoring me when I keep saying earwax? Not earwax. Oh, all right. That's a good guess. I haven't heard. Is it though? Is it a good guess? um... (laughs) What about sweat? No. No. How about pus? No. (laughs) (laughs) So gross. What about what about poop? Well. Pus and poop often will have blood in them. So it would be the blood transfer. Mm. Okay, do you guys want uh, to phone a urine? Here? You want me to tell you? Tell Not us. urine. Oh, Unless okay, it has yes, blood. Tell us. <laughs> okay, so pre cum, which is different than semen. Oh, uh-huh. right. Okay, okay. Pre cum, that's a people forget. And this is the always the hardest one breast milk. Huh. 
Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I did not so like, know that. Yeah, mothers can pass a lot. I mean, because you pass all the nutrients of your body, also all of the toxins of your body go through breast milk. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, so those five, and it's always, like, similarly difficult and funny for people to be guessing them. <laughs> and so now everyone's already laughing because people have said pre-cum in a group of strangers. Everyone's <laughs> laughing. And so that's, that helps right out of the gate. Because I almost, you know, almost always at the beginning of a workshop, people are uneasy. They're just like, what? And mostly because most people either have had traumatic sexual experiences mm-hmm. and or traumatic sex ed experiences. And so they come into the room already nervous and really in order for you to learn and grow and like be vulnerable in a healthy way and share and hear people, you, you're going to have to be like laughing and, re- and, and relax mm-hmm. a little bit. So, yeah. so then I break the group into five, five small groups and each group takes one of those terms, blood, breast milk, <laughs> pre-cum, semen, and uh, what am I missing? vaginal fluid Mm -hmm. and then they have to make a little song and dance number or a skit like really short (laughs) skits to perform for the rest of the group um so that they never forget the five bodily fluids that transfer disease oh my gosh yeah that's fun so it is trying to as hope put it leaning toward fact centered rather than fear centered Mm. Um, because it's just, sometimes the skits aren't about sex at all. They're like about cutting yourself and properly, you know, putting, using, you know, whatever it is. Um, so, but the skits are always funny (laughs) (laughs) or they're like little songs. Um, and a lot of times semen, the groups who get semen will make like sailor references and they'll be like sailors in a boat or something rowing, rowing through, uh, the vaginal canal or something crazy. (laughs) It's pretty cute. So that's That's like the, that's like the first 20 minutes of the workshop. (laughs) Hell yeah. And so then everyone's really out of their comfort zone. They just like danced and sang in front of the whole group. And so everyone's really ready to go at that point. (laughs) Hello. Today we have a special little segment instead of a song. Um, we're going to hear from a guest that actually joined us for our live show, just like Tanya did uh, in the rest of today's episode. Um, she actually led our live show because she is an amazing witch. So this is almost the one year anniversary of our live show uh, last October. I'm exaggerating a little bit, um, but it does feel kind of amazing that this all kind of fell into place uh, pretty close to the one-year mark and also pretty close to the live show that we're going to be doing in New York City. Um, So what's going to happen today is we're going to have the Rad Diviner, kind of like the Radical Diviner. Um, The Rad Diviner is going to talk to us about astrological influence um, on the politics of womanhood basically in the United States of the politics of women and our position here um, in the present and in history. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. So I'm the Red Diviner. I'm really excited to be back with y'all. Thanks. So just going to talk to you guys a little bit about something that's been on my mind for the last couple years. So it's 2018. 
At this point, it basically goes without saying that women have a long and intricate, if sordid, history of political struggle and progress. Or it could, if there weren't so many missing pieces to our puzzle with new clues to uncover every day. So for those of us looking skyward, many of these clues are astrological. Since its origin more than 5,000 years ago, astrology has been bound to the political, from William Lilly predicting the Great Fire of London, to Joan Quigley's Tigner as White House astrologer during the Reagan administration. This is super exciting because I've never thought about um, astrology's influence on politics. This is kind of a really new way to think about it. I do want to mention um, that you can find the Rad Diviner. She makes amazing Instagram posts at the Rad Diviner, or you can also check out her website, www.theraddiviner.com, or you can find her on Facebook. Just search the Rad Diviner. Um, but keeping with our theme here, uh, what are some of the key astrological influences for women broadly? Yes, good question. So we could talk about any number of planets, signs, events, etc. But to narrow it down, I want to focus on astrological Lilith and her relation to the two steps forward, one step back lockstep of women's political advancement in U.S. history. So for context, taking a quick peek into her background, her name derives from a class of Sumerian demons responsible for storms, winds, stillbirth, disease, and infidelity. Terrible things. Lilith first appears alongside the goddess Inanna roughly 5,000 years back, um, singularly named. So in some stories, she's a prostitute devotee of Inanna's. In one story, Inanna and the Hulupu tree, she's a tree-dwelling storm demon living in Inanna's holy garden with a wild bird and a snake who cannot be charmed. Inanna's afraid of her knowledge, has the tree raised to the ground, and Lilith banished. So across all the myths, Lilith is beautiful, desires everything Inanna possesses, and kills every plant she touches. Also same. Same. Skips ahead a few thousand years. She's Adam's first wife, created from impure sediment. She refuses to submit to him, proclaims her equality, and exiles herself to procreate with demons. Yikes. But also, we've all been there. So, uh, God tries again. So, astrological Lilith. Let's clarify our terms. So astrological Lilith has three forms. Asteroid Lilith is a physical body located roughly between Mars and Jupiter. Then there's Black Moon Lilith, a hypothetical point of the moon's apogee or its farthest distance from Earth. And last we have Dark Moon Lilith. So it's sometimes called the Waldemath Moon and it represents the goddess in her most mysterious form. This elusive disappearing moon is essentially a dust cloud that was first spotted in early September 1618. It doesn't emit any light of its own. It moves almost as fast as our moon, taking just 10 days to pass through a sign, sometimes less. So we don't need to parse out the meanings of each specific body for our purposes. It's just enough to remember that each one represents an aspect of Lilith as dark triple goddess. You so think the oneness and multitude of the Trinity, but femur and lunar. Whether we're talking Black Moon, Dark Moon, or Asteroid Lilith, they each relate to the convergence of sexuality, wild femininity, coercion, degradation, liberation, and power. And obviously, so does the question of what it's meant to be a woman on American soil since its colonial occupation. So as a figure, Lilith's fusion of astrology and politics kind of gestures toward the central figure in Federici's Caliban and the Witch, forever obsessed with this book, by the way. 
Um, considering her evolution in myth, Lilith is also the embodiment of a world of female subjects that capitalism had to destroy. The heretic, the healer, the disobedient wife, the woman who dared to live alone, the Obeha woman who poisoned the master's food and inspired the slaves to revolt. And in Lilith's case, the embodiment is celestial. In all of patriarchy, arguably the cultural and ideological bedrock of our imperialist capitalism conspires to destroy her. So as above, so below totally holds true here. So there are some pretty big links between what Lilith is doing in the sky and defining moments in U.S. women's history. Do you have any examples of these moments? I'm ready. So suffrage, representation, and the present. So if we cast the U.S.'s foundation chart from the 4th of July, 1776, basically like casting a natal chart, but for a country, it has its own set of planets, positions, etc. And unsurprisingly, Lilith is in its ninth house of visionaries on Neptune, planet of dispossession, among other things, opposite the moon in the third house, representing the people's limited ability to communicate themselves. So it seems about right for anyone familiar with womanhood in this country. So let's think about three key moments, just to kind of get a general sense of what I mean. There are so many more. So 1920, when our white sisters secured the right to vote, go y'all, Lilith was in Capricorn, where Lilith departs from the patriarch and redefines systems. She was conjunct the moon, mundane planet of the people TM, supported by the sun, which is rulership, transiting Jupiter, which is growth, and opposite the U.S. is Venus. That's a planet of young women. So she had started the year in the sign of growth in harmony with Neptune, planet of the oppressed, so the culmination of a struggle 52 years in the making, by a lot of accounts, was bubbling under the surface. So skip ahead to 1992, when voters elected more new women representatives to Congress than in any year before. And you guessed it, it was a huge year for Lilith in the United States. Black Moon Lilith started the year in Capricorn on Saturn and the Sun. So to any mundane astrologer, that spells women and our interests destabilizing government structures and a direct challenge to the country's conservative base. So by election day that year, this is like November 3rd, she was in Pisces, the sign where Lilith makes dreams and ideals reality. She was square transiting Mercury, planet of communications, and on the country's natal Uranus, planet of unruly change. It was all supported by the U.S.'s Jupiter, luck, expansion, and, politically, high court. And women were speaking up about what they wanted, making waves, and expanding their role in government. So those are two cool things, and sometimes things are massive setbacks instead. So one recent example is the signing of FOSTA-SESTA on April 11th this year, which arguably did more to harm sex workers, overwhelmingly, as we know, trans women, poor women, and women of color, than to provide any recourse to justice for quote-unquote victims of sex trafficking. Again, Lilith's in the mix. This time on Pluto, governmental upheaval, covert operations for most of the year. In murky aspect to Neptune, again, planet of oppression, all caps, and trying the U.S. as Lilith itself, the woman question. It's all opposite the sun, which is rulership, and harkens back to the patriarch. So the cool thing now is, though, she's moving into alignment with Jupiter. So basically, more than ever, we have a huge ability to pay attention to what she's doing and use that movement to enact change. So she's already very close to Pluto, 
also in Capricorn, and by December it will ping every single outer planet, Neptune, Uranus, Saturn, and begin dragging herself across the Uranus's Uranus. So she started coming into a close aspect with the U.S.'s Uranus just in time for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's incredible sleigh at the New York Democratic primary. Woo! I know. Too long didn't read. Pay attention to Lilith. She's incredibly powerful for all things femme in politics and incredibly useful to watch out for this year. We're in store for some seismic change, so if you're not taking advantage of the bitch goddess energy coursing through the universe right now, get with it. Pick up an ephemeris. So if you want to check anything out for further reading, um, Wolkstein and Kramer's Anana, Queen of Heaven and Earth, has some really cool um, original Lilith sightings. Delphine J's interpreting Lilith and her Lilith ephemeris are really helpful just to see what Lilith's about and what she's up to right now. Song of Solomon, if you're going to go biblical, and Barbara Koltov's The Book of Lilith. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for being here, The Rad Diviner. Once again, you can find her Instagram posts at The Rad Diviner. They're really cool. She does a tarot card a day, um, and she has some beautiful writing that accompanies each tarot card. And you can check out her website, www.theraddiviner.com, or find her on Facebook. Thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, absolutely. So then that's when we get into more consent activities. We do a role play that is not about uh, sex necessarily. It's about, um, I just, I have them do an activity where they, um, are just in a conversation and they're asking questions about, uh, movies that people like the characters in the movies in this movie that they like. Um, and then they eventually ask uh, their partner in this, uh, like I have them team off to perform the monologue of their favorite character from their favorite movie. And there's always varying res results. Some people are like, yes, cannot wait. I've been asking, I've been waiting all week for someone to ask me to do this monologue <laughs> <laughs> and they do it. And some people are like, there's no way in hell I'm doing that. <laughs> <laughs> or it's like, you know, maybe they'll do half of it or they'll like talk it through or like there's always some a lot of different responses. And so then we just talk about it. We just I just like what happened and the mm -hmm. conversations that come out of what people say happened are really can really be paralleled to conversations that come up in the bedroom or wherever you're having sex um, or with partners. And the whole point is so that we can really take a step back and see that consent is something that is manifested over time. And it's something that we're actually practicing all the time is like asking for asking you to pass something, asking to borrow things. It's a it's a part it we shouldn't feel so foreign to it as we do mm. just because we haven't had the language for it. Lots of people have never even heard the word consent and may not it doesn't mean they don't know how to ask for things ask people questions about how to learn to do something well or you know like we this we are practicing this every day in our everyday lives but we are just so um we have so much shame oriented around sex because of our culture um that we don't transfer those skills very well right yeah damn that's amazing though yeah <laughs> Which is also a funny activity where people are like singing and yes. <laughs> performing or not. Um, <laughs> <laughs>
It's always fun. And it's like, you know, this person, you've, you've asked them to, they, they told you this was their favorite movie of all time, their favorite character in this favorite movie, but they still may not want to perform for you, even though it's something they love mm-hmm. and like, and they've already told you they love and like it. There's just like a lot of lessons to unpack oh, from this. That's like, so really interesting. S- simple. Yeah, this real simple activity. And some people are like, you know, I probably would have done it yesterday, but I'm just not feeling well. And so I'm not going to perform this monologue today. But like, ask me another time, maybe not in this big open room with everyone and maybe I'll do it. (laughs) Mm, Yes. Yeah. I recently learned a tool that is like kind of uh, that that story makes me think of in relationships where if you feel like your partner or even like a friend isn't meeting a need that you've expressed, you can ask yourself what need of theirs are they trying to meet by their actions? And it's sort of a similar way of understanding like what's motivating them not doing the thing you asked of them. Oh, that is really interesting. That's smart. So in your example, you'd be like, oh, you know, I guess they're feeling like, you know, they don't want to sing today or maybe they don't like their voice and they have a need to be private. So you sort of like reframe this and it's a way of understanding consent differently. Yeah, totally. And I try to get across that consent is not transactional. Like this isn't a, these aren't transactional. Um, that's not what we're trying to get at. Um, you're, a, you know, consent is something that you build over time and, you know, can be really fluid. And there are probably other words that would even be better for that you manifest and build like because it's uh, really tied up in trust. Um, And you, you don't have to, you know, I hear like, you know, we see stickers and slogans like consent is sexy and blah, blah, blah. It's like, it doesn't have to be this bizarre thing where you're like, I really, I'm giving you permission to do this thing to me. It's like, it doesn't have to be these strange things, right? It doesn't have to, (laughs) and it can, you know, sex should be sexy. Like you should feel really powerful based on your actions and words in your sexual experiences. Um, If that's what you're hoping for. And it's often, I think is. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, another thing that comes up in the workshop toward the end, we do more of a like a personal little writing activity and then we share um, some from that. And it's around writing down questions that you have, but but targeting them at a specific person. So I have people like really imagine a mentor in their life or a partner or a parent or whoever. And like they were going to have a really honest conversation about sex or sexuality or gender with this person. What would you ask? And one, it's like, it, it, I, I'm trying to get across that anytime you need to have a difficult conversation, practicing beforehand, writing out your feelings and emotions is really helpful um, mm. in, in life. It's just like a helpful skill. But then also just being able to clear your head and like really think intentionally, what questions do I have? What do I need to know? It's also a really important process that a lot of us, I think, just don't, don't we haven't been even taught that process. Mm-hmm. For sure. It's yeah. so, so, so stigmatized. And I feel like there's there's just so many layers to peel back. Like, I feel like when I started the process of at least not thinking that I was going to burn in hell, like, then <laughs> the next thing was like, okay, what do I feel comfortable with? And I still didn't have a full grasp on that for a long time. And I think having those consent talks way sooner, which I think will lead us into kind of our next question, too, helps to to ground us in like this is mandatory 
you should always be feeling 100% excited about what's going on. If not, like something needs to change, whether it's the specific thing of what's happening or the partner or just something to make you feel like it's something you actively are wanting instead of being like, I feel a little uncomfortable, but I feel like this is what I should be doing. And so consent question mark. Yeah, it's what it I think like having them thinking through these things in like really concrete ways is like a really incredible thing. Yeah. Even yeah, for and, little and kids. Just everyone. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. Very early. I love um that sure. idea with little kids that they have the option of giving, you know, adults and other people that are familiar hugs or high fives so that you don't tell your kids they always have to like hug uncles and aunts and grandmas. They can do high fives instead and give them a little choice about how they want to interact with people. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, you can send messages really early about body autonomy and, you know, building self-respect and awareness so early. I yeah. think we even um, with we withhold language from kids. You know, I see all the time with little kids like touch their nose. And if that's your nose, you touch your forehead. That's your forehead. And then later you'll say, show Aunt T where your nose is, where your ear is. But if when they touch themselves, that's like, no, don't touch yourself there. And they don't even give a word. They don't even give any language uh, to mm. use. And if they do, it's often like slang. It's like, that's your pee bird or your, <laughs> your hoo-ha, <laughs> your hot box. Like, it, we're, not even giving, we're not even giving accurate language. Yeah. And then we expect people to be able to advocate for themselves mm-hmm. at some point in their life. You're supposed to just figure this out. This is the, the Nancy Drew shit. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <sighs> well, I think you've, you're definitely speaking to why it's important for there to be early access to sex ed. I think a sort of related question is not just like, why is it important for us to start sex ed early, but why is it important for us to have sex ed in the first place? Well, well, I'll say that the country uh, on the planet with the lowest unwanted pregnancy rate is Sweden, and they approach sex ed in a totally different way, and it starts in kindergarten, and it's a part of every year of your schooling. It's not even mm-hmm. called sex ed. It's like, you know, living your life or some shit. <laughs> it's like, just like <laughs> yes. life skills, um, and it's a lot early on, especially it's focused around emotions mm-hmm. and how it feels to love and how it feels to give love or ask for love or how, how it's different to love your stuffed animal and your mom. How do these feel different? Um, and then how to work through when you're sad or upset. It's like these are skills we're not giving young people. And so, and, and I don't mean to make a like hostile jump here, but now, I mean, <laughs> so people are growing up with no skills to understand themselves, their emotions, their bodies and they are literally ruining their own lives and other people's lives like there's just the the ripple Mm. impacts I mean I I don't it's a crazy but like I I just I could say a lot of things about what this leads to like mass shootings and all kinds of shit it's just like it's it's, uh, like the the ripple impacts are just endless to not being able to art to like articulate yourself or how you're feeling to ask questions to better understand how others around you feel um, not even about sex about anything in a workplace environment in a schooling environment yeah. Yeah. and like you know not having the skills to talk through things with other humans in your life is kind of the basis of why we are in our economic and political situation yeah. we're in completely agree 
Yeah. So I like to say that consent, you know, starts with your body. It's really important. Um, that's like ground zero, but consent um, doesn't end there. It, it extends to our political decisions that are made. I don't consent. Mm. I haven't consented to the to the healthcare system that has me so indebted that I'll probably never dig my way out. And I'm still not in the best, like the health that I want. I'm still not getting the healthcare I want. Mm. I haven't consented mm. to the people, to people who don't look like me and haven't experienced anything like me making most of the decisions about my County and state. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like these are, cons- they're like all kinds of things to think about and how we um, consent to how our world is even working right now. Most of us don't agree with decisions that are being made and we've been left out of the process to figure it out. Yeah. I had a question about like specifically kind of what you're speaking to. I didn't know if you, if there was like a moment or if it's just been something that's kind of building up over time. Like why is the U S specifically such this sex phobic society, you know, compared to other European countries, you mentioned Sweden, but even across the board, it's it's really quite just a huge juxtaposition, really, with most European nations. Um, and we see this from anywhere in, like, all of our everyday interactions to even our movie grading system. Like, anything that has any sort of sexual um, scene in it is mm-hmm. rated R automatically, whereas, like, violence is so much more accepted <laughs> in our society. And it's, like, flip-flopped in other nations so I don't know if you've kind of just because you've done this work like looked into why why the fuck is the U.S. so backwards about this I don't know that all the answers um to you know I'm not sure but so here are some one is that what I would say about the U.S. without knowing as much about other countries is that so much of our systems are based in religion and division, basically, of people. So just like keeping people separated based on all kinds of arbitrary, insane things. And especially, you know, I, so this is a this is this is information from um, a native woman, a Lakota woman that I heard speak on a panel not too long ago. And so I'm repeating something she said because I trust women. <laughs> and so I haven't fact, yes. I haven't fact checked this, so and I'm not going to. But she said that there was no documented cases of sexual violence in her nation, like in her community, before the church showed up. And she put that at the foot of the church because they showed up preaching homophobia and monogamy. And before that, Mm. she was like, if women wanted to leave their husband, they just sat their shoes outside of the teepee and like told them to go go on, find someone else to fucking annoy. And like women (laughs) had a lot more control over their household and over the laws and um, decisions that were made for the house for both household and the community. Mm-hmm. And when the church showed up, the Catholic church brought in boarding mm-hmm. schools with settlers and were teaching, like, of course, lots of homophobia, like uh, Laura talked about. And this, like, abstinence and body shaming and monogamy. And I'm not even de- that necessarily personally against monogamy. I, th- I, sh- I just find it really difficult to keep more than one partner uh, happy, but um, <laughs> that's my own, that's my own personal <laughs> experience. But um, it is it's another like false dichotomy about how how love and pleasure and reproduction and life should work, right? So it's like all these intertwined things and and the false yeah. dichotomies of gender of all you know these these false mm. like 
binaries are they're violent and they are literally killing people that's that's yeah. i don't know how another way to even say it i would yeah i would add to that just sort of thinking about like the idea of sex phobia or like why we don't have you know adequate sex education that sort of thing in the united states i think what everybody was just saying is definitely true obviously it's like important not to romanticize any like place or you know period of time but there are a lot of places and periods of time that have had a lot better uh situations than we have for sure and i think what tanya was saying about like religion especially patriarchal religion is a really big thing and i also think that like capitalism has a lot to do it you know not that like sexual assaults didn't happen before capitalism like you know not that there you know hasn't been patriarchy in some form or another outside of the catholic church like all you know all these things are contingent in a lot of ways in history but i guess Mm. um when we're thinking about like what whose interests do it serve which i think is a kind of a question that we always like if we're thinking from a marxist perspective we have to ask like whose interests do it serve for people in the united states like to have Mm -hmm. this really shit sex ed system it's like it serves a hetero patriarchal that whole system basically like if women don't know how to say no if we don't have access to the kind of reproductive health that we need if kids are told from an early age that like being gay is shameful or that Mm. um you know there are only two genders and this is the one that you are if all of these things are drilled into our heads and like there are no options that are floated to us that's all stuff that we have to figure out on our own and and our i think our society works really hard to make it difficult for us to figure those things out and like when we don't have access to that kind of information a lot of us are deeply unhappy but we're also much more subservient to um like uh, the more conservative forces in society like we're you know we're much less likely to threaten the the hold that men white straight cis men have on our society and like there's Mm. all sorts of other stuff that we could get into about how you know white class privileged women are like often complicit in keeping all this stuff functioning too because they're doing well in that society or in that you know societal structure whatever anyway i'm starting to get off on a rant here but um (laughs) for real no it's good i do think that like like there are systemic issues and that that there's a real sort of material reason that we have so much trouble putting this stuff together in the united states and thinking about like what interest does it serve to not have these sort of systems in place is a really important question to ask. One yeah. that I didn't answer yeah. very To well, add quickly on to yes. that, I think you can look at like a period like the 60s in the United States to see the way that political revolution and sexual, sexual revolution are really connected um, and how threatening yeah. that immediately was um, when people have, you know, all of a sudden good access to birth control, more education, um, less emphasis on, you know, heterosexual only or monogamy. Um, it's less about a family unit. That's that is very tied to political revolution and changing changing politics. And I think our political structure definitely knows that. Yeah, like the heteronuclear family is a locus of control. Right. Um, right. 
And I think there's already a lot of the healing justice movement um, that's really led by women of color uh, in this country that are that are really moving that whole um, headspace of, around what our lives look like or are wholly interconnected with our ability to move um, our political realities. Mm-hmm. And um, I just want to shout out that Adrian Marie Brown, the author of Emergent Strategy, which I highly recommend, is currently writing a book about pleasure activism. Um, and I think people mm. will start to hear this a lot more. And it's really based in the fundamental belief that a, for a long time, organizing strategies were around like motivating people based on guilt or and shit mm-hmm. like that. When that's not a uh, that's not anything. No one is motivated long term by guilt, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and sure. really, it's around if we all are if our liberation isn't all tied together based on our ability to live our whole full creative selves um, in a world that sees us f- in those spaces, um, then we're not going to get there together. If we're all if all of our liberation isn't tied up together, we also in a similar vein we were approached by Nation Books, and we are reviewing this book uh, by Kristen Godsey that's forthcoming called Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism. And I think that it's going to be a really interesting conversation that will keep continuing um, and that that we'll be doing in November. So there's a lot of amazing literature, thank goodness, coming out about this Mm -hmm. (laughs) specifically. So yeah, I mean, I was recently, not recently, a couple years ago in like an organizing intensive with really close comrades. We were being and we were trying to really unpack like what's holding us back. And honestly, we talked about how it's not it's not our strategy all the time. It's not like what our actual we're actually doing around our organizing. It's these like three pillar core things that we can't get together, which is our self care our family shit and our who we're fucking like our our love situation these are the three core things that are always so fucking awry and off the charts that we can't (laughs) we can't get them all together um and like Mm. seamless Uh, so and that's holding back our organizing it's holding back our political like movements and i just i think they're so intricately intricately connected Mm -hmm. they can't possibly be separated definitely the personal is political as they say yes it's all political (laughs) and it's all personal (laughs) (laughs) damn right so we probably have time for like one more topic has teaching sex ed changed anything about the way you approach sex or your own sexuality and i think just generally opening opening it up to talking about sexuality and sex ed yeah, that's such a good question that I actually don't get a lot. Uh, I think my own sexuality personally has evolved a lot over this process just by learning from the participants of sex ed. So creating intentional space where we're going to be safe here together and talk about things that we're normally not allowed to talk about has helped us, I think, helped many of us see ourselves in a more complex and complete way. Mm. So, yeah, I think definitely my sexuality has grown a lot in this time thank god <laughs> and uh, I've just been able you know I think Janelle Monet said it very well I'm always opening open to learning more about myself and I think that through sex mm. ed I really have learned a lot about myself and for, like I'm always really thankful at the end of every sex ed for both the questions and the comments and things that people put in the space I'm, I'm always learning something every time 
And then um, about the way I approach sex, I think that's a really important question too. And it's definitely, yes, you know, I have, we t- this often comes up in sex ed about what, t- how to form questions of your partner and how consent is really, it's, it's everyone involved is equally responsible for building and manifesting ongoing consensual love and partnership. Mm. And so I think a lot of that, what has the biggest thing I think that has changed for me, and it sounds really small, is that I've learned to switch my questions to open-ended questions and not yes or no questions. Um, mm. And so that can really switch a conversation or how things are talked about. If you're asking yes or no questions, then, I mean, if I'm asked yes or no questions, I can just be like, uh, I can just not elaborate and and I won't push myself um, to be very descriptive if if it's just like, do you like this? Yeah. I mean, that's a, like, yeah, I like it. It's I, it's not my favorite, but I'm not going to say <laughs> I don't like it. It's like, you know. So <laughs> when you ask open-ended questions, it's like, you, you know, things are going to, you're going to get a lot more detail and things are going to get more whatever. But I often, like, I don't even talk that much during sex. I don't, like, my, and the, my current partner doesn't talk that much during sex. Um so a lot of, and, and I think a lot of my like sex desire questions, I've moved outside the bed, like it, into spaces where we're not having sex. Like I, we talk about this in other times so that it's not so charged up, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. Sure. That's smart. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So I've always thought it was totally insane that we make sex this whole other thing when it's such a part of everything. So, you know, sectioning it off as like, this is the sex class where you talk about the sex that you will sometimes have making it totally separate (laughs) from the rest of our lives (laughs) seemed really bizarre to me. And I feel like, Mm -hmm. you know, as Tanya said, it's the foundation for our species. We couldn't exist without sex. Every baby pretty much is the production, the product of either lust or love. Sometimes science we know helps now. But um, sex is a foundational part of that. It's a part of music, art, culture, love, family, sometimes food. It's just like a part of everything. Hell yeah. And I think also like making it a part of even Hope and I or like other friends and I are like, hey, how's this thing going in your sex life? Like how's this doing like and I love I hope I hope it's okay that I'm sharing this that it's like something we can talk about and that it's like I feel comfortable asking you about it and and also like that being a part of our support for each other as friends of being like let's check in about this thing and we don't have to be like wasted at brunch with each other for one of us to like timidly throw it out there you know (laughs) what I mean like, like we'll be having a, a normal exactly. conversation. Like, what'd you have for breakfast? Oh, like, and how did you guys work this thing out sex-wise? Like, it's nice that it's more integrated. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, yeah, and it can be sex with yourself. My single friends, I'm often like, when did you masturbate last? Oh, like, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's like, if they're not, I'm like, I hate to call you out here, but you are stressed the fuck out. And <laughs> <laughs> are you drinking water? Are you eating well? Are you sleeping? And are you masturbating? Aww. These are like the four like <laughs> pillars of yes. care that we have to be focused on. Absolutely. Kellen, were you going to say something? Too? Oh, well, just the topic of talking about sex at brunch. Um, I feel like another big part of my <laughs> sex education that I, again, am, like, remembering now. This has just been a journey for me, y'all. Um, 
a big, I think a big part of how I, like, learned about sex and, like, what relationships were supposed to look like and, like, what, like, a normal sex life was supposed to be like was from watching Sex in the City as, like, a junior yes. in high school. Yeah. And part of it, like, I think there were some things that were good about that. Like, they definitely talked to their friends more openly about sex than I generally have ever felt comfortable. But they also, it was just, like, a lot of... It was, like, I mean, Samantha has, like, her her thing where she makes a lot of jokes about becoming a lesbian because she dates that, like, one artist woman. I'm going deep into the, the Sex and the City deep tracks right now. But, like, there's there, there wasn't, there was a lot, it was, like, very male-focused for being, you know, this show about women. Didn't go, I mean, we could talk about Sex and the City forever, but that's another thing. Don't let your kids learn about sex from TV. There should be some, like, intentional conversations about it. At the very least, they can learn about sex from our podcast. If you can't bring them, <laughs> if you can't bring yourself to talk Seven, to them about turn it. Turn this on. Put, their he- yeah. put this in their headphones and then send them to one of Tanya's trainings. Yeah, or they can just pay for Tanya it's to tough. come to their house and teach a class. <laughs> oh, yeah. That would be great. I Do never that. get paid for sex ads, so that'd be, if you paid me, that'd be great. Yeah, if you're that. listening and you're <laughs> yes. a parent and you want help. <laughs> Get in touch, you know, on Twitter or something. <laughs> Pay for Tanya to come out and teach you and your Aww. kids things. That's so sweet. Parenting is tough. Hell Shout yeah. out to all the parents just faking it till you make it because it's hard work. Yeah. Tanya, is there anything else you want to share with us? I, I'm i just so, so, so grateful that we had this opportunity to chat with you. Like, it, first of all, it was fun as hell. And second of all, like, what a joy to talk about this with you and just talk with you in general yeah this was lovely I'm so glad to be on with you all I mean there's so many things I could we could do three more episodes on sex and sex ed um but just you know let's do it what (laughs) what I often say at the end is just my the best advice I can give is to explore your own body so that you know as much as you can so that you have all the information you can for your not just for your sex but for your health um because we also just can't just like we can't expect our partners to know everything about us we can't expect our doctors to and we're already in a fucked up healthcare Mm -hmm. situation a lot of people don't have good relationships with their doctors but I really encourage trying to build and manifest good relationships with your healthcare providers and know your know your own body because you no matter what what a doctor knows you know the most about your own body so I think just keeping ourselves healthy is is a full-time job honestly and I just I Mm -hmm. know we we need each other and I want us to be able to care for one another yes care for one another amazing anything else to add hope kellen no i think this that's a great way to to end the show positive take care of yourself kind of note well thank you so much again thanks yeah i love you all so much thanks for all you all are doing out in the world um i'm always so grateful to be in your presence and hear your voices um Ah, i mean i when I was in Chicago recently, I stumbled into a uh, reproductive health bowlathon, uh, the bowlatarian. It was just so joyful. Yes! I got to contribute to um, you all were raising money for an abortion fund, and so I just feel like you all are doing the Lord's work out in the world, and I'm so grateful to be in uh, in movement with y'all. Yes, thank you. Big love to season of the bitch.
episode. Thanks again so much to Tanya. She rules. We will link to an email where you can get at her as well as her Twitter handle in our description. So if you have any questions or want to get in touch about paying her for some sex ed, that would be awesome. Yeah. So as always, uh, (laughs) you know, find us on Twitter at season of the B we're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. You can send us messages there. Uh, we've got gear up on our website, season of the Um, we also have live show tickets, uh, season of the B or <gasps> season of I should say, whatever you want to type into your browser, you can get there. Yes. Um, so we'd love to see you at uh, our live show in New York. We had a great time in Chicago and uh, we're really excited to make it happen again. And we'd love for you to be a part of it in the meantime. Yeah. Like us and subscribe and write us a review on iTunes because it really helps other people find us. Mm -hmm. Subscribe to our Patreon. Is there anything else I need to ask them to do for us? I think that's it. Send us your music, y'all. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we have one more request of you. We, Send us your music so we can play it on uh, the podcast. Yeah, we're always, always, always looking for music. So even if you're like, I'm just in this small town band, I don't care. If you are not a cis dude and you're playing music, or even if you're someone who's not a cis dude but you play with other cis dudes, that's fine. Like, just send us your shit. We'd love to hear it. We want your shit. Yep. Okay. All right. I love y'all so much. Love you guys. Thanks. Bye. 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 Bye.